The reasons they have to take place in the lobby, of course, is that the people who are trying to influence the legislators usually aren't allowed into the formal chambers to speak to anybody. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, uh, we've been talking about some political terms. We continue to work down our list of vocabulary, all related to politics and government. This week, we're going to work through some a little bit more of the nitty-gritty, some words that aren't so common to us necessarily, all of them, but they do show up, and everybody ought to know how they work. And the first word this week is the interesting one, caucus. Yes. has to do with gathering together and making decisions, right? Right. So it's a private meeting of leaders or representatives of a political party. It's often used now, well, it can be used as a verb, to caucus, and it's often used now to refer to a group of legislators that do meet together regularly, and they're called the Democratic Caucus, the Black Caucus, or whatever. And we don't know where this word comes from. I saw one reference that said it was possibly Algonquin, so uh, an American Indian term, ah. uh, meaning advisor. But uh, nobody seems to necessarily buy into that entirely. <laughs> so it's just this strange, odd word that came in from somewhere. But, you know, a lot of those words that came in just seemingly popped up out of nowhere. Maybe they were Native American terms. I think that that's very possible as an American Indian. I don't know, but it, caucus is also very British. Um, I'm thinking of Alice in Wonderland, where they have the caucus race. Oh, Okay which consists of running aimlessly around in circles. Right. <laughs> trying to get dry after being soaked. Right, right. So making fun of the whole business of a caucus as being kind of a circular, pointless exercise. But of course, by the time Lewis Carroll came along, there was a lot of intermixing between Americans and English already, so it's possible still. The caucus we hear most about these days is the so-called Freedom Caucus, mm, yeah, which is made up of Republicans who were formerly called the Tea Party Caucus, and uh, their job has been to prevent liberal bills from passing those. And during the Obama administration, they were the ones that were often threatening government shutdowns. And they've also been very active in the shaping of the new tax so-called reform bill. Yeah, and there's also the Congressional Black Caucus. Right, mentioned them earlier. Yeah, yeah and um, I remember earlier this year, Trump was much maligned for calling on the reporter April Ryan, who's a black journalist, asking her if if she could introduce him to the Black Caucus. Do you remember that? Yes. Oh, my Lord. Like All you black people must hang out together. Yeah. Right, yeah. Oh, Lord. Uh, well, uh, we don't need any further proof that uh, Trump does think in terms of race and color and all of those things. Uh, but the term you mentioned is, is a verb to caucus. And uh, from that activity, we get to the label of the Iowa caucuses. This is a unique way of nominating its candidates 
I mean, Iowa doesn't really have primaries where you go to the ballot box and that's it, right? Well, it's not the only state that has caucuses. Um, Washington state still has caucuses. We are in an odd situation where for years we used the caucus system where people just meet together in a school gym or someplace and uh, talk with each other and argue for pro and con various candidates and then decide who they're going to nominate. And then that goes up to the county level and then from the county to the state level. And then the state uh, does it in Washington state nominated Bernie Sanders at the last election um, overwhelmingly, I think, by about 80 percent, something like that. Mm-hmm. But several years ago, people who were fed up with the Republican caucuses, which got dominated for a while by far right religious types, said this is undemocratic, that you can just plan to go in and take over a public meeting and then impose your candidate and agenda on everybody else. We should have a primary like everybody else. So they started a state primary. But then the voters in the state approved an initiative for an open ballot to say that uh, you don't have to declare what party you are and that um, you can vote in the primary for either a Republican or a Democrat, which opens the door to, uh, say, Republicans going in and voting in the Democratic primary, but voting for the weakest possible candidate. Right. And there were actually attempts to do that sort of thing. And so the Democrats got upset at this and decided they were not going to participate in the primary. So they still hold caucuses, whereas the Republicans are taking part in the primary. So it's an absolutely screwy system. As I understand it, also in Iowa, the Republican caucus and the Democratic caucus, they operate in different ways. They don't have the same rules for nominating their candidate. Um, but how does it work in Washington? If you want to participate in this nomination process, you have to show up in person? Yes, and you sign in. I can't remember if there's some provision for absentee participation. I don't remember that. Um, but there's a, a time schedule that's out. There's just so many minutes for instruction, a set of instructions that has to be read verbatim. Uh, and then people form only sort of sub caucuses within to discuss, you know, all the people for Hillary in one place and the people for Bernie in another place. And then, then they would elect a spokesman. You had a certain amount of time for doing each of these steps. And they also involved there's a phase where you can put forward proposed platform planks and debate those and vote on. Most people tend to leave after the presidential nomination has been done. Oh. But when Obama was first nominated, we, our caucus was held in a nearby town in a school gym that was just jammed to the rafters with people. It was just an amazing thing. Um, Kitsap County, although Bainbridge Island is heavily Democratic, Kitsap County overall is pretty conservative. And so this was quite a sight to see all these Democrats gathered in this school gym. I took a picture of it at the time that uh, was pretty impressive. Now, when you select your spokesperson for the group, uh, is there then some debate that goes on, some back and forth? Yes. 
Then each person gives a, a case for their candidate, each spokesperson, and then there's also open discussion. People can ask questions back and forth. Uh, again, there's a limited amount of time for that, but uh, plenty of time to explore various issues. And there are some people that are sort of cranky and get off on odd tangents or keep repeating things over and over. So you have to have a lot of forbearance. Mm-hmm. Um, we got to one point where some guy was almost ready to sock somebody in the nose. <laughs> it's popular democracy, but it all depends on people who are either motivated enough and able to take the time to show up. Yes. So it's not democratic in the other sense, because our primaries are very democratic, because it's all done by mail. Every registered voter in the state gets the ballot, and all they have to do is fill it out, put a stamp on it, drop it in the mail. The nice thing about the caucus, in spite of all of these obvious obstacles that you have to overcome to show up even, is just that very thing. Uh, here in Oregon, we also have vote by mail. So every time there's an election, primaries or whatever election it is, uh, your ballot shows up in the mail. They send you a voter's pamphlet and uh, you get a million advertisements in the mailbox. Right. I, all the usual stuff happens. So I always feel good about voting early so I can ignore all that stuff and put it straight into recycling. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, then that's the game you play here, too. But there's something very sterile about it, too, where you make your decision in the privacy of your home and nobody intervenes to try to persuade you to do something else. So you read up on it and you follow the topic as best you can. But uh, there's no interpersonal. For all I know, I'm the only person on my block voting. I don't need to know what my neighbors are thinking. I don't need to know anything else to make my decision. But this idea of having a caucus is interesting to me. It's this public meeting where you actually show up and you are forced to confront people who have opposing views from you and you're forced to listen to what they have to say and uh, you can speak back to, you know, what brought you to your decision, your preformed decision. Has it ever happened to you that you show up at the caucus and you change your mind? Um. About issues rather than candidates, I think. Yeah. I can't say it had a big effect. It is very interesting, and it can be exhilarating. It can also be boring. <laughs> there is a long process that they go through of checking credentials that seems to take forever, and you're just sitting around twiddling your thumbs and maybe talking with your neighbors while that's going on. Yeah. But the problem with caucuses for me is that in most places, especially in Iowa, they're dominated by party activists. They're the people who may know the most, but also have preset ideas about what the party ought to be doing. There's not a lot of fresh thinking uh, that comes into those caucuses usually, although I guess you could say Trump provided fresh thinking. Mm. But the big thing about the Iowa caucuses is, of course, not that they're caucuses, but that they are early yeah, because they're not tied to the calendar that determines when primaries are held. They have them set to be the very first thing where there's a vote and they don't have much practical effect theoretically. 
they shouldn't have a big effect on the election. Iowa is not a big state. It doesn't have a broad cross-section typical of America. And uh, there are all kinds of reasons that we shouldn't be listening to Iowa as a model. But the thing is they've poised themselves first. And so it's the first thing to be reported. And at that point, some candidates find that nobody wants to give the money anymore because they didn't do well in the Iowa caucuses. Yeah. The whoever wins in the Iowa caucuses is not at all guaranteed to win, but somebody who does really badly has a really good chance of not winning. And they're held in February. Yeah. So the demographic is skewed heavily toward people with all-wheel drive vehicles, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, come on. <laughs> there are lots of reasons why demographically Iowa is not indicative of the wider United States population. In fact, the reason that we have ethanol in our gasoline is that the Iowa caucuses insisted on that must have every candidate that came before them for many, many years had to endorse that because the corn growers in Iowa were wanting a market for their corn yeah. as ethanol. There was a great episode in the West Wing about that, which is worth going back and looking at, that explained all the ins and outs and why that's so outrageous. And it's interesting that I think Trump decided uh, he was not going to endorse ethanol, mm -hmm. if I remember rightly. And so maybe that's broken. But it turns out encouraging farmers to grow more and more corn is not good for the environment. And putting the ethanol in the gas does not really help. Right. If corn wasn't enough of a monoculture crop, uh, that just pushed it completely over the top that it's actually being used for fuel now. Uh, well, okay, I have learned a little bit about caucuses here, and I have always wondered about the Iowa caucus because that's the one you always hear about, and it's interesting to hear about the Washington caucus also. So I appreciated that exploration of that word. It's an interesting one, and we don't come across it all that often, but it's well worth knowing. And another one that's worth knowing within Congress is a group of people who have shared interest or shared issues that they are discussing. But outside of Congress, we have lobbyists. Yeah. We get the word lobby from there. And of course, the lobby is the part of the building, right? Are they related? Well, um, some time ago, uh, a few months ago, we were watching a BBC documentary about the Houses of Parliament, and the narrator was saying that uh, the term as a verb had to do with the activities taking place in the lobby of the British Houses of Parliament. Um, it does have to do with talking outside the chamber, but not necessarily in the British Parliament. Um so it started not in England at all, but in America. Um, it referred to the activities which were originally carried out in public spaces outside the deliberative chambers of Congress. Uh, now, of course, uh, a lot of those conversations take place in fancy restaurants, and golf courses, exotic vacation spots, and uh, on the phone. So uh, lobbying is trying to influence legislators. And these are from non-legislators. The reasons they have to take place in the lobby, of course, is that the people who are trying to influence the legislators usually aren't allowed into the formal chambers to speak to anybody. I mean, they could visit, but they can't go in and talk to anybody. And besides, often what they want to say, they want to keep quite confidential between themselves and the legislators. 
So the origin actually is related to activity that's carried on out in the lobby outside of the halls of Congress. Right. Because uh, you can't sit there with the congressperson you're trying to influence, sit next to them at the table while they're voting and whisper in their ear or anything. you got to do this activity outside the halls. Right. Well, now from there, that makes me think of political action. I think of lobbyists. Yes. You think of these people running around. What's the stereotype? Who was oh oh Ross Perot? Remember he was always talking about the lobbyists with their spit shine shoes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) There are professional lobbyists, a lot of them, tons of them in Washington, many more than there are legislators. And uh, the Republicans like to complain about big labor lobbyists and the education lobbyists, those they feel are particularly dire influences in our country. Uh, But of course, big business lobbyists, banking, Wall Street lobbyists. Um, all of those are much more influential, much more powerful. And a great deal of the legislature, which gets passed not only at the national level, but in state legislatures, is now written by lobbying firms, uh, lobbyists who draft it. This is the things we'd like to see for the people we are protecting or the industries we're trying to promote. And they write up the bill. It is not at all uncommon for a legislator just to take it on trust, not even read the bill completely or really understand everything about it, um, put it forward, get it passed. It's actually the lobbyists who make a very large percentage of the laws in Congress, and sometimes legislators are surprised at what they've introduced and when it's pointed out to them by an investigative journalist. Yeah, and I'm not sure that enough people are aware of that phenomenon, that uh, bills that are passed in Congress are not written by members of Congress. I mean, some of them are, but uh, many of them are written by lobbyists. Say, well, you know, here's your package of gifts and here's the money for your next campaign and here's the bill you're going to put forward on the floor of Congress. And eventually that wording on that bill ends up getting passed through Congress, depending on where the power is in Congress. Of course, it's illegal to do those two things together. So what you do is just give generously to the congressman or woman and then develop a relationship and uh, they become somehow interested in what you have to say. (laughs) Yeah. You don't talk about the money while you're talking about the bill. That would be bribery. That would be very, very wrong. Yes, yes. That would be illegal. Oh, my goodness. You can't have any impropriety in this process. Uh, Closely related to lobbyists and lobbying uh, and this activity of writing bills, a couple of things. One is a lot of people, I don't think, understand that a lot of television news is written by political action committees that are closely related to lobbyists. They do lobbying activities. And these PACs, the political action committee, will often uh, put together little news segments that promote an idea. And uh, these news segments can also be put together by corporations or whatnot. So we have a lot of uh, polluting of the discourse and polluting of the legal system going on through these sorts of activities. This has been exacerbated by the recent amalgamation of local TV news and on radio and television both 
um, where some very conservative organizations will dictate uh, what stories should be on the local news and those stories will be according to the agenda uh, the political groups that they're aligned with and very likely influenced by lobbyists so just sitting and listening to your local news you could be affected by lobbying yeah and it's really unfortunate that there are so many people who get their news from television but everybody knows that everybody who's a serious political candidate or you have a serious political agenda i think understands that television is the place to go to to spread the news spread the word because that's where people go and uh, it turns out that it's one of the most difficult mediums to employ for trying to express anything that's nuanced or has shades of meaning to it and that's why our president likes it so much mm-hmm. right yeah he's very black and white he never reads a paper as far as i can tell he gets annoyed at the new york times when somebody on fox news denounces the new york times i don't think he ever picks up the paper yeah well that's probably about right yeah, and he comments a lot on CNN and the news broadcasts. And, of course, CNN is a national news organization, but a lot of people just get their news from the local news, like you're suggesting. My search is mainly National Public Radio. They do a great job. Mm-hmm. And uh, interestingly, a lot of their activities were funded by a huge legacy that was given by the widow of Ray Kroc, the uh, founder of McDonald's, who was himself rather conservative. Sure. And uh, National Public Radio gets maligned as being this huge, like, liberal bent organization. I don't see it that way at all. It has a lot. There's a lot of funding that comes from corporate America. Plus, they bend over backwards in their interviews to try to be as neutral as they can. Right. And it just happens to have a, uh, a more thoroughgoing reporting of the issues and using a medium that's more suited to that. Radio, I think, is better suited than um, television. To uh, quote Stephen Colbert, they have a reality bias. (laughs) Right. Another term that pops up in the news from time to time is sort of inside baseball term is K Street. Mm -hmm. Washington, D.C. has an array of alphabet streets with different letters attached to them. And it just happens that a great many lobbying firms have their offices on K Street. So when a journalist wants to refer to the activities of a bunch of lobbyists, they'll often just use that as shorthand, say K Street is trying to do this, that or the other thing. Yeah, yeah, that's just the location of uh, a lot of these lobbying firms. And these political action committees mentioned those also. The one I think of most instantly is the uh, American-Israeli Political Action Committee, APAC. Yes, very effective. Yes, very effective. <laughs> very, uh, very influential. And um, I think part of the reason why that one gets a lot of attention is because it has been so so effective across the political spectrum. So uh, Republican, Democratic, whatever. um, There's a lot of money in in that political action committee. And they know that they need to talk to everyone. And so the issues that are important or so-called important to Israel uh, get a lot of voice on the floor of our own Congress (laughs) as a result. And that's part of the reason why Israel has such a unique status uh, in international relations. Right. And there's a lot of American Jews who really strongly disagree with a lot of the policies that APAC advocates. 
Uh, they certainly don't speak for all Jews, but they have the money, that's for sure. Yeah, and that's something that I think is wildly underreported also, is that there are many American Jews who completely disagree with the politics of APAC, but uh, you won't find that advertised very heavily in any news source. It's just something that, you know, you might read about here and there, and once in a while an editorial shows up on the pages of the New York Times that suggests that's the case, but it's not really a... Um, I think the default assumption is that APAC speaks for Jewish people across the globe. So that's the Israeli lobby in the form of APAC, the Political Action Committee. There's one of many. One of many. But there's also super PACs. Yeah, so political action committees are organizations that engage in lobbying, and uh, they often operate independently. They will sometimes just buy advertising on issues. Um, so without donating to Trump's campaign, for instance, they could say, um, we really believe in making America great again, and uh, red ball caps are really cool. So. <laughs> Vote your conscience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. That's a, obviously an exaggeration. Um, but super PACs have huge influence on government because they're able to merge together different organizations who collectively have some agreement on the general direction they want things to go and then pool all their resources. Uh, and the money gets filtered through and the donations are anonymous so that uh, you can't say to a senator, well, you took X amount of dollars from this guy and therefore you're obviously influenced by him. And this business of doing independent educational advertising, boy, wouldn't it be great for this country to have a guy who wears a red ball cap all the time? <laughs> Not mentioning anybody in particular, but, you know. Right. So when you hear uh, liberals in particular railing against the PACs, uh, and Bernie Sanders says he wouldn't take any money from PACs, Hillary Clinton did from liberal PACs. And the general stance for liberals has been, look, as long as it's legal, we have to do it out of self-defense. Mm-hmm. Bernie was unusual in that he managed to generate enough popular excitement to get small donations to fund himself very, very well. Interestingly enough, Trump didn't really need a lot of money either. Uh, he kept saying, well, you can trust me because I can spend my own money on my campaign. Turned out he didn't really do that. And in fact, he used some campaign money to cover his own personal expenses. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was already in agreement with most of the people who were trying to lobby him. So they didn't have to give him a lot of money. And, uh, the fact is that the news did the lobbying for him. The press was so besotted with his bizarre comments and behavior that everything he said got magnified and took over the news and blotted out whatever Hillary Clinton was trying to say. And she was just not as interesting. And so he dominated the news. And he did not buy nearly as many ads as she did. He didn't need to. I don't think most people pay much attention to political advertising anyway. And there's been quite a bit of study recently that shows that the people who have the most money to buy political ads are not the ones who necessarily win. Um, door-to-door lobbying and the kind of cold calling and doing efforts like saying, okay, we've got a van and we'll pick you up at your house and take you to the polling place um, since you're a known uh, supporter of our cause. That kind of thing works much better. It's very hard. It's it's tough. It requires a lot of volunteers. Um, but that's what really works well. The big spread of uh 
television advertising is always pointed to as the major corruption, but it doesn't always have that much influence. I fantasize that if just everybody in America could get a DVR and learn how to use it, so you could skip all the ads. <laughs> uh, it would do great damage to uh, big corporations, but it would end this insane competition to see who can buy the most television ads for a campaign. Right, right, yeah. That is the whole point of the super PAC and the PAC, is that people can donate to the cause without donating to a candidate. Exactly. And if it just so happens that that group uh, does some advertising work that ends up supporting a certain candidate, well, that's just uh, all part of it. Yeah. I remember when, um, did you ever watch the old uh, Stephen Colbert show, The Colbert Report? Oh, yeah. I was a faithful viewer from the first day. (laughs) And do you remember his Super PAC campaign? Yes. Where he uh, went around and he collected... (laughs) Just without telling anybody what he was going to be using the money for, he collected a million dollars from his viewers. Right. Uh, he ended up donating to charity, but yeah, I mean, of course, that's the only ethical thing he could have done. But- yeah, I think he funded um, some school expenditures in North Carolina where they had been cut by the state legislators. So it all went to a cause that was worthwhile. But but he was demonstrating how easily it is to set up a pack and do things that are just outrageous that should be illegal. Exactly. That was the whole point was, let me show you how I can legally do something that is entirely corrupt. John Oliver did something similar on his show when he did an expose of TV evangelists who just are in it to get rich. Hmm. And he set up a uh, evangelical program in which there was uh, no God involved or anything. The sole message was, give me money. I want to be rich. Give me money. Send me money. Send me lots of money and uh, I will give you blessings. And he managed to uh, get this all set up and uh, had it checked by the IRS. And they said, yeah, that's legal. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. The IRS almost never has challenged any of this kind of activity where it's, in many cases, just completely fraudulent, mm-hmm. where the person is saying that they need this money for their ministries and they're buying themselves private jets and gold-plated mansions and whatever. Right, right. Well, it would be as if corporations weren't taxed for making extravagant purchases. <laughs> Another subject. <laughs> okay, Paul. Well, speaking of other subjects, I think we better get on to some other subjects next time. Okay. Talking about caucuses, lobbying, but we have a whole other set of topics that are related to politics and government that I want to get to about citizenship and civil disobedience and all that area. Let's have a civilized conversation next time. Right. Thank you, Paul. Okay. So long time. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening. <laughs>